Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This is a special edition looking at the career of a player many consider to be the greatest ever, Stephen Hendry. It's now 30 years since Stephen Hendry turned professional. Of course, he has since retired, but his legacy lives on. Seven world titles in the modern era, of course, a record. And we're going to be looking at his career in the company of Phil Yates, Snooker Scene's chief reporter, who's been there for pretty much all of Stephen's great moments throughout the decades. Just one thing before we start, Phil is on the phone so his voice is going to sound slightly different to mine. It'll be strange at first, but I'm sure you'll get used to it. So, Phil, Stephen Hendry, well, 1985, of course, when he turned professional, that was the era very much of Steve Davis. And at the time, I'm sure many people thought Steve Davis's records wouldn't be overtaken, but, of course, they were. Well, I was one of them. He played so brilliantly and so dominantly during the 1980s, I just could not possibly see how anyone could be so dominant again certainly for the foreseeable future. But not only did Steve Davis's records go, they went almost immediately after he dropped off the, uh, the top placing in the world rankings, replaced by Stephen Hendry, and we know what happened next. Hendry, the most dominant player of the modern era without any question. And the thing was, and you can, you can look on YouTube now and you can go back and look at the way he played then. He was so fearless, wasn't he? I mean, he just came out taking everything on, which at the time, I and mean, when we look now, that's kind of how people play, but at the time that was very unusual. It's unusual, isn't it? Because normally what happens is when players come along, they look at the best player in the world and they attempt to copy them. And a lot of people have copied Stephen Hendry since. But although Steve Davis was an attacking player, of course he had to play the defensive game as well. It seemed that Hendry was more influenced by the likes of Jimmy White, who also was very attacking, although he didn't obviously win as many big titles as Hendry. But he seemed to be his hero, which I guess was ironic in a way, considering how things ended up at the crucible between them. He, 
it seemed he couldn't be bothered with the safety. He'd rather lose a frame than have it have it be dragged out for forty minutes because he'd just think, well, next frame I'll get him, make a century. Well, he seemed to take offence at uh, <coughs> scrappy frames. He just couldn't uh, get his head round them. And you look at the uh, amount of frames, the percentage of frames he lost when the balls ran scrappily. It was uh, very high indeed, even for someone. For a decade, it was right at the top of the tree. Nowadays, when people become world number one, it's a monthly occurrence. So he's become world number one, that bloke's become number one, and so on. Back then, it has to be remembered, Stephen Henry was world number one without interruption from 1990 until 1998. And then, of course, a little bit later on, I think it was seven years later, he got the world number one position back. So to be world number one for eight consecutive years, well... I think it just underlined how consistent he was and how brilliant he was. Yes, and one thing that you don't often hear about him, actually, people very rarely talk about his natural ability. Let's not forget, he, he first played snook at the age of 12. His parents bought him a table for Christmas. It was just out of the blue. They decided to buy him a table because snook was on the telly and it was it was visible. Four years later, he was at the Crucible. You know, yeah, Christmas <laughs> 1981, he got that militia table, and that was one of the best-ever Christmas presents bought by anyone. <laughs> Gordon, uh, his father, I made a, an inspirational choice there, I can tell you, that uh, December the 20th, 25th, 1981, uh, uh, I think it changed the game's history. We didn't know then, of course, a young lad in South Queens, Free Scotland, got that present and fell in love with the game. And within four years, as you say, he's playing at the most famous venue for snooker. And within a few years after that, he was winning ranking events on a regular basis. When you look at the statistics, Dave, you know, over the years, I think some of his records, I can't imagine they would ever be, uh, ever be troubled. 35, 36 world-ranking titles, I should say. 57 finals, he appeared in 123 ranking event quarterfinals. The numbers are just staggering. The total prize money he won, £8.7 million. He's still top of the list, I believe. All those 147s at a time when they weren't common, I think he made 11. And the century total, 775. Back then, that was just in a different stratosphere. Yeah, there's another one as well, fewest words in a press conference, but we'll come on to that later on. But I want to stay at the moment when he's at the early part of his career because the thing is, it was really sudden the way he started to get success. 1987 Grand Prix was his first ranking title at the age of 18, beat Dennis Taylor, obviously one of the stars of the 1980s in the final. And I think this is the other thing, it's not just his talent and his application, but he didn't seem to care about reputations, did he? He wasn't in awe of these great players. Well, he had total and utter self-belief. He knew, he didn't think, he knew he was better than anyone else. And uh, that armoured him when in, the, in these big matches. Uh, it gave him uh, an extraordinary weapon for the fight because he was convinced that if he played anywhere near his best, not just his best, but anywhere near his best, he was going to prevail. I think he suffered some early setbacks, obviously suffered a, a few very surprising defeats in the early days. And one mustn't uh, underestimate the, uh, the blow of losing the 1988 UK Championship final to Doug Mountjoy, who was then 46 years of age. He was considered very much an underdog, even though Mountjoy had had a good career. Mountjoy made three consecutive centuries in that match, played beautifully to win it. At the time, he thought, well, you know, is Andrew going to kick on from here? Is he going to be hurt in the long term? But, of course, that wasn't the case. After that, it only seemed to spur him on even more. You need a few of those, don't you? And of course, famously, early in his career, when he was very young, he, he did a, an exhibition tour with Steve Davis. He got uh, he got beat on a regular basis, but he picked himself up from that. And of course, while we're talking about Hendry, we've got to think about Steve Davis, because at the time, OK, he'd lost to Dennis, he'd lost to Joe Johnson, but he was the number one player who was winning all the big titles during the 1980s. What do you think he was feeling as he, as he saw Hendry sort of coming, coming up on the rails? 
they even were. Um, Jimmy White as well, of course. He was blocked for so many major titles by Hendry. It was just an extraordinary thing, really, that we had one phenomenally good player replaced by another straight away. Yeah. Of course, Steve had Barry Hearn in his corner, a very important figure for him. And Stephen Hendry had Ian Doyle, who was a similar sort of character in a way, very energetic, could be abrasive, but he, he instilled, uh, I think, in Hendry a great work ethic, didn't he? Very much so, yes. I think Hendry, by his own admission, was rather lazy when he was a teenager. I think we all were. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us still are, but anyway, go on. <laughs> As the years went by, I think uh, in his teenage years, he realised that uh, in order to be the best, you've got to work really hard. That was instilled in him by Ian Doyle on a regular basis up there at Spencer Snooker Centre in Stirling. And he went into the club, you know, he used to pra- uh, practice so hard from uh, morning, noon and night, literally. And he used to brush his own table when he got in there. And he played very, very hard and very intensively as well. Not just the amount of time he used to practice up there, but also the the intensity of the practice. He played properly. He didn't uh, knock the balls around in a random way. He had got a target, and that was to be the world number one. And within a, a very few years of turning professional, he was there. I think the relationship he had with Ian was very interesting because there was no bigger supporter of, of Stephen Hendry than Ian Doyle, but he could he could be a little grudging with his praise and he would say things famously in the press to sort of rile Stephen up, wouldn't he? Well, he knew which buttons to press with Stephen Hendry. Some of the players didn't know and they made ridiculous statements and fired Hendry up to their own detriment. Ronnie O'Sullivan in that World Championship semi-final comes to mind and other lower-ranked players as well who run their mouth at times and fight up Hendry and uh, they were beaten 5-0 in no time. The great example for me with Ian Doyle, can't remember the Masters it was, I rang him up uh, beforehand for a preview piece and he said, oh, Stephen Hendry's got no chance, he's not putting the work <laughs> in he used to, he's lazy, he's become complacent, he's won all of this money and I think it's gone to his head and all of these kind of quotes. So I did the piece, Stephen Hendry, no chance for a Masters defence. John Doherty was then writing for the Daily Record, the Daily Record snooker correspondent, obviously the, the leading tabloid in Scotland. He rang up Ian at the same time, unbeknownst to me, and Ian said, I think he's an absolute certainty to win the Masters. He's playing the best snooker of his life. Completely contradicted himself. And he knew full well that Hendry would seek both stories. And in many respects, he knew that Hendry would be fired up by either one of them. And so that's the way he used to do. He used to play the media to try and get the best out of Hendry. And also, of course, uh, it was how he used to talk to him during the mid-session intervals or between matches. He played a psychological game which, far more often than not, paid off. OK, so we Hendry-Davis rivalry. Hendry, of course, won the World Championship in 1990, but I guess the sort of the passing of the torch really happened at the UK Championship later that year when they played in the final. They played the year before as well. Hendry had won that one. But the 1990 final was a classic, still one of the great matches. He went the distance. And uh, I think it was really indicative of, of Stephen Hendry's career, the way he won it, because he, he won it in a really sort of brave way, didn't he, in the end? Well, he did. I mean, the 89 final, Hendry had won... Preston Guildhall, one of the great venues in the game, absolutely packed to the rafters, and it looked as though Steve Davis was going to turn back time, as it were, and, and win that final. He was 15-14 ahead. Hendry not playing well, a little bit rattled, Davis seemingly in control. But in the penultimate frame, the 30th, he potted a blue with the rest. You cannot believe it was one of the greatest <laughs> shots I've ever seen, I will ever see. And he won that frame on the colours, on the 
Lee decided, as he did so often, with a, a sizable break. Won that match 16-15, and I think that really knocked the stuffing out of Steve Davis because percentage-wise, the chances of him potting the blue at any stage of any match was very low. To do it at that stage of such an important final, it was ridiculous. It was a, a 5% chance at most. Yeah, incredible way to win it. And, uh, of course, there was a very definite big four of the time, those two. John Parrott, we mustn't forget him, but also Jimmy White. And, and I think a lot of people of a certain age will will look back, uh, I was going to say fondly, but I think if you're a Jimmy White fan, maybe not. But those battles that they had at the Crucible started actually in 1988, didn't it? That second round match, which was incredible, that Jimmy won. But the finals, of course, were all, were all won by Hendry. And they really put snooker on the map, didn't they? They drew huge audiences and, and the rivalry, the difference between the two characters. You know, you, you had to support one or the other. They were very good friends. There was a rivalry, of course, there was England, Scotland. You know, you got the, the conservative, clean living man against the, the Londoner, the hedonist, the, the entertainer. But they were good friends off the table and lots of mutual respect. But you said something there, you know, in the question, Dave, about Jimmy White had lots of fans. And I'm absolutely convinced in my belief that it was the fans of Jimmy White that ultimately allowed Stephen Henry to win so much at the Crucible against White. And it made it difficult for White to prevail. And I'll tell you why. For two reasons. When they booed Henry, it was the worst thing you could possibly do. It was like lighting a massive firework. Okay, I will show you. That was his mentality. The other thing was, by cheering on White to such an extent, as the years went by particularly, it put him under more and more and more pressure. He wasn't just playing for himself or for his adoring father, Tommy, or for his family. He was playing for millions of people around the UK and indeed around the world who he knew wanted him to win the title more than anything else. And I think those two factors combined meant that Henry won those four finals against White um, perhaps more easily than he might have otherwise done. The first one was great. The, the first final that they played in 1990, the average frame time was something like 12 minutes, which today would be regarded as remarkable, but back then, absolutely incredible. Of course, 92, the, the first real signal for Jimmy's fans because he was 14-8 up, playing great. Henry won the last two frames of the third session and then came out playing great stuff at night. And, of course, you've got to think the scars that Jimmy had losing by then three finals already in, in the, at the World Championship must have come into play. 93 the session to spare one. No one ever really talks about that, but Hendry says that's the best he's ever played in a world final. And then the ultimate sickness for, for Jimmy's fans, of course, was 94 when he was in the balls to win and, and Mr Black. But I guess by then, everything that happened before must have been at the forefront of his mind. Well, I'll tell you two stories about those finals. The 92 final uh, in particular, we talked about the blue with the rest in the UK Championship final that Hendry knocked in. The only shot for me in his career that topped that was in the latter part of the third session of that final. He was in deep trouble against White. Everyone thought the hoodoo was finally going to be broken. And he was in a really tough position clearing up. I think it was to go 14-9, but that might be incorrect. Anyway, he needed this frame badly. And he's rolled in the brown off its spot, dead weight for the blue, for position on the blue, with the cue ball very close to the middle pocket jaws. It was a shot that basically defied all logic. Only Stephen Hendry could have even thought about going for it. The pot itself was difficult. A dead weight under that kind of pressure, it was almost impossible, and yet he knocked it in, cleared up, and ended up winning uh, the match with 10 consecutive frames to finish off. He went from 14-8 down to winning 18-14. Uh, the other story was the last final they played, the 18-17 one, and I suppose if you're a believer in superstition, you could say that I'm to blame for White not winning. 
doing that. <laughs> we found that we found the culprit at last. Very, very uh, clearly indeed. Um, basically, I was sitting in my normal place in the uh, in the press room. Ian Doyle, Andrew's manager, as we've asserted, was in there. He always used to watch the action from the press room. And I went over to speak to him about something in particular, about maybe getting access to Stephen after the match or whatever it was. I can't quite recall. As I sat down, as I sat down, white missed the black. <laughs> and Ian Doyle's gone, you are not leaving here. You are not leaving that seat until this frame's over. I said, Ian, look, I, I'm really busy. I, I've got to go. You're staying there. And John Carroll, who was uh, Stephen's uh, driver and right-hand man, who was a good guy, John, he said, you are, you're staying there. So I just remained seated as Henry cleared the table. And when, and, uh, when he won the, uh, the match 18-17, Ian shook my hand and said, you're on a percentage. <laughs> I'll, needless to say, I've never received the cheque. No, well, it would have been some percentage as well. Uh, of course, he, and then, so that's Jimmy, the Jimmy White finals. He beat Jimmy again the year after, actually, in the semis. He made that maximum. And then beat Nigel Bond in the final. He beat Peter Ebden the year after. And it looked at that stage like he, he might never lose there. He's just winning every year. But, of course, 97, we know... He did lose to Ken Doherty, and that was a big shock, wasn't it? it? It really was. You know, I'll never know to this day what happened there, but he just wasn't right going into that match. Now, this is taking nothing away from Ken Doherty. He's a very good friend of yours, Dave. He's a mm. really good mate of mine as well, and for him to win the World Championship was one of the highlights of my career, seeing him do that. It was tremendous, but there was something not right. And I think the moment I realised it was during his semi-final against James Watton, Okay, he won that match, but he didn't seem as focused, as intense, as motivated as he perhaps was in previous years. And this is the interesting point, and it ties in with something we were talking about a little earlier as well. In that final against Doherty, he actually scored more points, you know, than Ken, even though he lost the match 18-12. Now, that was because he lost all of the scrappy frames. The only ones he seemed to win were the ones where he was building breaks and in amongst the balls where he liked to be. I think he was just lacking, well, I just don't know what he was, but there was an X factor there that was lacking. Well, he made five centuries. Now, normally, you know, you couldn't lose a match if you made five centuries, but uh, but he did, as, of course, uh, famously Ronnie O'Sullivan did in the best of 19 years later, but that's that's for another day. Uh, so he, he's lost that final to Ken. Now, that seemed to start just a slight decline. We're talking still, he's still winning tournaments, but it all leads up to the UK Championship 1998. Now, by then, he's already... Lost a couple of UK finals to Ronnie O'Sullivan. He's lost the Masters on a respot to Mark Williams, but he turns up at the 1998 UK Championship. Still, fancied as one of the certainly one of the big favourites to win it. Plays Marcus Campbell and loses nine nil. An incredible result. Well, you know, earlier on today, I was listening to a radio program. They were talking about the the great surprises in the 30 years. It was tied in with this Back to the Future yeah. business, you know, Back to the Future Day. And I was thinking, what's the greatest surprise in snooker? And obviously, that one comes to mind, and you think, well, surely there was something more. No, that tops the list without any shadow of doubt. It wasn't the actual scoreline, because Campbell beat him again in other world ranking events. It was the the fact it was a 9-0 verdict. I mean, you can't believe that. Marcus Campbell couldn't believe it. The only good thing that came out of that was that it was a two-session match, he was 8-0 down after the first session, so he was resigned to defeat Henry. So consequently, the press conference afterwards wasn't quite as prickly as it might have otherwise have been. No, and he, in the end, took the positives from it. He, he, he saw that there was something wrong, whether it was his game or just some application or something, and he worked on it very quickly. I mean, he actually won a tournament just after that in Malta, but not, not a big 
ranking event. But within a few months, he was winning big tournaments again. He won the Scottish Open, he won the Irish Masters, and of course then he went to the Crucible in 1999 and he won his seventh world title. And my word, he had to play well to win it because these were the players he beat. Paul Hunter, James Watanar, Matthew Stevens, Ronnie O'Sullivan and Mark Williams. So he doesn't get much tougher than that. I can't imagine how anyone could have a, a tougher run to the world title uh, than he had that year. And as you say, uh, he wasn't a player in 99. He was at the start of the decade. Uh, that was no doubt. But I still thought he would possibly add it to his world uh, titles at the time when he won his seventh. All of the, the papers were saying, oh, yeah, I'm going for 10, all this kind of stuff. I never thought he would get to 10, but I certainly thought he might get to 8 or maybe even 9. Uh, but it never quite happened. You know, there was a very telling moment at the start of the following season. You were there, Dave, when he said in his press conference, <laughs> after winning the 7th of the Crucible and uh, eclipsing the records of Ray Reardon and Steve Davis, who, of course, won six world titles, he said, after doing that, I don't really care if I never pot another ball or win another yeah. tournament. And you knew at the time that was complete codswallop. He always cared. He cared right until the last moment uh, when he retired after that match against Stephen Maguire at the Crucible. It was just a way, I think, of psychologically disarming the situation because he knew his powers were in slight decline at that time, even though he was the world champion. It was remarkable, actually, that season when he was world champion. He started off with a, a couple of tournament wins, one of which was the British Open when he made a 1-4-7 in the final. But you knew that the slippery slope Yes, and, and one of the reasons for that, of course, was the players coming through, you know, not just the likes of Peter Ebden, Ken Doherty, but, of course, the, the Holy Trinity, the class of 92, Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins and Mark Williams, all of whom were already beating Hendry, they were beating him in finals, and they were getting better and better, and, of course, the more they won. Well, I want to clarify something here, actually, and it gives me a good, um, a good platform to do so. Recently, during a, a pool tournament, the, the World Cup of Pool actually described Stephen Hendry as the greatest player of all time. Now... It's all about criteria. The greatest player in eSport is the one who's got the best record. Hendry undoubtedly has got that. I still think the finest player and the most talented player is Ronnie O'Sullivan, but his record doesn't match up to Hendry's, and O'Sullivan would be the first to agree with that. So it's all about the, the way you, you term these things. But when you've got Ronnie O'Sullivan coming through, you've got John Higgins, who was an absolutely phenomenal match player and a much better tactician than Hendry ever was, and Mark Williams, so competitive and unfazed by reputation, as Henry was when he was coming through. You know, those three players, plus plenty of others as well, made his life so much more difficult and provided him with competition right through the field that he hadn't had a decade earlier. Yes, and of course he only had himself to blame, really, because who, who did those three players look up to? Stephen Hendry, they were all of that age where they, were, they would have been teenagers when he was winning big tournaments and then obviously turned pro. And they all played that attacking game, didn't they? They did. And, you know, obviously you see things with your own eyes. I mean, I played Ronnie O'Sullivan when he was 11, so I knew... Actually, he was 10, I think. I knew <laughs> even then he was going to be extra special. You, you just knew it. Um, with John Higgins and Mark Williams, it quickly became apparent after they turned professional they were going to be really good also. But what really put the, the nail... In, in, the, in the coffin for me, if you like, for the other players who were supposed to be the, the pretenders, was what Stephen Henry said about them. He used to come over to me in private moments and be very, very full of praise for O'Sullivan, for Williams, you know, for John Higgins, obviously, who he'd practised a lot with. And you knew when Henry was praising players, because he didn't praise an awful lot of them, you knew when he was praising them, that meant a great deal. You knew they were going to be world champions. 
Let's talk about his uh, relationship with the media. I think it was rather interesting because uh, we, we both covered his career as journalists and he would very often spend time in the press room when he wasn't playing, if he had the afternoon off or if he had the day off or whatever. And he'd come in because I think in the players' room he found that quite a few players, they brought friends and family in and he'd be hassled you know, for autographs or whatever. At least he could come in the, the press room and not be hassled. And he was fine, he would chat and he would, he'd, be, he'd be really good. But of course, after a match, if he'd lost, it was murder. the worst one ever. Yes. I mean, we've had a few silent treatments over the years, <laughs> and I've come to learn that in that case, you basically sort of sat two or three rows back with your head down, trying to be, uh, you know, yeah. camouflaged. Well, I've learned that since. I've learned that since. You didn't get yeah. eye contact with a great man. It was absolutely steam out of the ears kind of time. But of course, you were the press officer for the uh, World Snooker Association at the time, so you had, had no option but to be there in the firing line sitting next to him. I believe it was at Tala at the yeah. uh, Irish Open, the, the one-year Irish Open we had in that national basketball stadium, which wasn't the best venue, let's uh, be honest. And Hendry had just been beaten, I think, by Tony Drago, and he was absolutely livid. And you can understand why, because I remember that match very well. It wasn't on TV, but I went down into the arena to watch it. Hendry was 4-3 up, and in the closing two frames, he did nothing incorrect whatsoever. And through a combination of inspiration, a little bit of luck, and some extraordinary balls potted, Drago beat him 5-4. He was seething, Hendry. And he came upstairs, a couple of questions were asked, nothing was said. And then you said, well, Stephen, you, you must be very disappointed. And he looked up, and he said, with sarcasm dripping <laughs> from the one word, he said, shrewd. Yeah. Yeah. One word press conference, shrewd. Yes, I, oddly enough, I've not forgotten that. But uh, and it wasn't the only time. But also, I, I, you might remember this as well at the, at the old Regal Masters in Motherwell. He actually won a match and still did the silent treatment because I think he, I think he played McManus, Alan McManus, and he, something like five two up, and he only won six five. And he was so annoyed that he'd allowed Alan away back into the match. He, he did he did the the silent treatment then when he won. That's right, absolutely. Yeah. He was just appalled by what he perceived because he told us this. Afterwards, when he cooled down, he was just appalled by what he perceived to be his lack of killer instinct, which is something he prided himself on, and also his lack of professionalism. Um, but in fairness to Hendry, he wasn't the only one who was guilty of that. The other player who was uh, guilty of the silent treatment, maybe three, four times in his career, was Steve Davis. I think they set themselves such high standards that when they didn't meet them, it was difficult to take. Yes, and I think as, as, as time goes on, maybe we understand we understand it more when you're there and you've got 30 paragraphs to write and no quotes it can be quite annoying but it's it just an indication of how how seriously they took it you know it's the old maxim that you know show, show me a good loser and I'll show, and I'll show you a loser full stop maybe but uh, in general his his relationship with the media i mean he, he did and again i think a lot of this was down to Ian Doyle he understood that he was an ambassador didn't he and he had to fulfill his obligations and he did do
maybe three or four sentences, and we'll be very happy and we'll let him go about his business. Ian Dorr said, I'll see what I can do. So, Hendry comes up. Great. Fantastic. Spoke really nicely about the 147. That was it. All of our needs were met. The following day, a tabloid journalist who will remain nameless quoted Henry as saying something along these lines, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically this was it. Yes, I've... Bear in mind, this is Stephen Henry supposedly talking now. <laughs> and you know, Stephen, he would never say something like this. Yes, Neil Armstrong made a giant leap for mankind, and yesterday I made a giant leap for snooker. Now, Henry was absolutely buzzing mad. He rushed up into the press uh, room when he read this uh, quote the following morning. Who's responsible for this? It was something he hated, the fact that he'd, you know, been made to look a fool and obviously been made to look arrogant when he wasn't. And also the fact he'd put himself out to come and speak to the media and then he'd been stitched up to a certain degree. I think the fellow who did it didn't think he'd done any harm. It was more out of <laughs> front than anything else, but Henry was really annoyed. Yeah, he did well to get those quotes because he was in the Brown Bear, the pub up the road, for most of the afternoon. But but <laughs> but, but but anyway, I, yeah. I mean, I think the the thing about Hendry and the media was he he wasn't someone who necessarily in a press conference was verbose. But what he said was worth listening to. He thought about what he said. The worst thing, as you know, from a player, they come in and they start telling you about what's happened in every frame and all little technical things that nobody cares about. What you want is a story. And he, he did understand the, the media. And I think over time he became comfortable, although I guess it only takes one sort of journalist, as you've just said, to sort of spoil it. But certainly with the regular press, with the freelancers, he was great, wasn't he? Well, he was. And, you know, the greatest compliment that was ever paid to me on the snooker circuit came from Stephen Hendry. At the time, I didn't really think much about it, but in subsequent years, it's become a source of real pride to me. We were at the German Masters. I was the only journalist there, and he came off after losing to Tony Drago again. <laughs> it was just after the Irish tournament. And he said, I'm thinking about retiring. I'm, if I keep playing like this, I'm going to pack it in. So, of course, big story, you know, which I, I did. Quoted him absolutely accurately. And... The following week, I saw him again. He said, you know, the worst thing about it was, he said, I couldn't say I'd been misquoted because only you was there. <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, you know, what a nice thing to say, really. I knew, I knew exactly what he meant, and that's the ultimate compliment he could, have, he could have possibly paid me. But, you know, what you were saying about Hendry in press conferences, not too verbose, but got his point across. That's how he commentates now. Mm. He makes his point. He's the most qualified player possible to make a point and to offer an opinion about another player but he doesn't over talk I think he's an excellent commentator yes and also you mentioned retirement there of course famously when he was 19 he said he, he would retire when he was 30 well when he was 30 as we've already established he won his seventh world title but that was really the, the, it was the start of a decline because he never really challenged again for one of the big titles he uh, did get to the world final three years later against Peter Ebden was beaten there, eighteen seventeen, and then it was a sort of steady decline, wasn't it? Until till the point where he lost his top sixteen place, and then he just had enough. Well, going back to that two thousand and two final, I think what Ebden did there was one of the greatest achievements in Crucible history because we all know he doesn't play fluently. He takes an awful lot out of himself to win any match. He had that epic semi final with Matthew Stevens come through after being two down with three to play one in a decider, and then he beat Hendry again in a decider. So I'm taking nothing away from Ebden whatsoever. It was one of the great crucible achievements of all time. But there's no doubt in my mind that Hendry psychologically had played his final against Ronnie O'Sullivan in the last four. O'Sullivan had said those rather disparaging things about Stephen, which O'Sullivan later regretted, and quite rightly so. And I think Hendry put so much into that match, and it was 
produced, that he went into the final maybe underestimating Ebden, but certainly not quite at the peak of his powers mentally because he'd invested so much into the semi-final. But we look now at the, at the circuit as it stands in 2015. There are a lot of 40-somethings or players just either side of 40 who are doing well. The top 16 is full of them, in fact. So I guess the question is why Hendry didn't play to that sort of standard into his 40s. And I think my own personal theory is I just think the intensity that he had when he was a young man, he just sort of burnt himself out. You look at some of the other top players. John Higgins w- would, would admit this himself, so I'm not talking against John, but you know, he, it, there were times where he was a bit lazy for a few months. He didn't practice properly and he didn't put in to every tournament the sort of intensity that Hendry did. And uh, Do you think in the end, just mentally, he just didn't have anything left? Yes, absolutely. But there's that. You know, it make, makes me laugh when they talk about burnout these days. Burnout? This is burnout, what Stephen Hendry did in the 1990-91 season. He won five consecutive world ranking events. He won 36 ranking matches on the trot. He got to virtually every semi-final and final that season, and he turned up at the Crucible, and he really was burnt out. Mm. And he lost in the quarterfinal to a very good player from uh, our part of the world, Dave, uh, Steve James. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he didn't have a lot left, yes. He maybe was the snooker equivalent of a boxer who'd been up against the ropes a few times too often. But also, I think, you know, his great failing was his strength of ten years before. He was very stubborn, wasn't he? (laughs) And towards the end, he was stubborn in terms of how he played the game and how he approached it. He refused to uh, become a little more tactical, a little more circumspect, a little more defensive. He simply refused to do so. It was an affrontery... Um, uh, to his beliefs about the game. He continued to go for everything when his potting from distance wasn't quite as sharp as it uh, had been. And that left him vulnerable to players who were uh, very good indeed. And that's why uh, he slipped down the rankings and ultimately decided to retire. But you said it must have been difficult for him to take that decline. Well, let's put it this way. It was difficult for me to watch because I thought so much of him that when he started um, to become a little... Suspect and a little, you know, um, missing the odd ball here and there. He would never ever do so. And then losing to players, you thought, how can this be? It was tough for me because I think it made me realise that time passes, no one's at the top forevermore, and you know we're all victims of old father time. Yeah, and of course the, the problem great players have it, it, when they start to decline is that they're not just playing talented opponents, they're playing against their own past and they're measuring themselves against how they were. And as you say, he, he just refused to, to change the game. If he was going to go down, he was going to go down swinging. And, and in the, the end had to come. But when the end did come and he decided that he was out of the top 16, he wasn't really beating that many top 16 players. He was beating most other players, but not the very top players. He decided he was going to stop. But at the, at the World Championship 2012, where he did eventually retire, he did make a maximum. So it was still coming in fits and starts, wasn't it? Oh, I mean, it was the perfect end for me. When it happened, I was really, really sad. I'd got no idea uh, that he was going to retire. Uh, the story was just dropped in our, in our laps, as it were. So it was a sad occasion, but, you know, with reflection, wasn't it a great thing to do? You just made a one four seven at the Crucible. You've beaten a good player... Okay, you've lost ultimately quite heavily, but you're still one of the best players in the game. You're not retiring when you're forced to. I mean, a lot of players say they've retired when, in fact, they've dropped off the circuit. They're just saying they're retired because they've got no option. He really did retire, and I think it was a fitting way for one of the most stylish snooker players ever, and indeed one of the most stylish sportsmen ever, 
to say enough's enough. Yes, and he did it in a very modest way because it would have been very easy to have announced it before the tournament and you know got the big applause and all the big big send offs and everything. But in fact, it, it kind of had to be drawn out of him at the uh, the press conference. He sort of he said something that suggested he was retiring, and and I think Phil Sturd, our friend from who was then working for Five Live, had to clarify it. That, that it was the end, but you know he didn't make a big deal of it, did he? No, he didn't. I think a lot of people think that because he got that grim expression and because he used to say uh, what he thought and speak his mind throughout his career, that he was arrogant, that he was big-headed. He wasn't. Absolutely not. Stephen Hendry was a realist. On occasion, he used to say things that rubbed people up the wrong way, but in fact what he was actually saying was the truth. The classic example, of course... And this is talking against one of our really good friends, Dave, was Mark Johnston Allen, <laughs> who beat him on three occasions out of three, uh, remarkably, uh, in the in the 90s. And the last match uh, that Mark won was 5-4 at the International Open. Henry was absolutely disgusted with himself to lose the match. He couldn't quite believe it had happened because, of course, much had been made in the press before about the fact that MJA had won their previous two meetings. And he came into the press conference and said... Mark Johnston Allen should be in the same room as me. <laughs> now, at the time, Hendry got a lot of criticism for that. Um, of course, about an hour later, he came back into the press room and he was absolutely, uh, you know, totally chastened and couldn't quite believe he'd said it. But that was the way he was. He used to speak his mind and say what he thought was true. It wasn't a matter of arrogance. He wasn't arrogant at all. In fact, he was quite a modest individual who didn't really enjoy the attention he received off the table when you're having a meal in a restaurant with him. Sometimes people would come up and start chatting. And he was always civil with them and always totally professional, but he knew deep down he was a little bit embarrassed. You know, that celebrity status didn't sit well with him. I tell you what, he was lucky that that thing with Mark was pre-Twitter. You can just imagine the, the sort of bile he'd get now. But, of course, people have got to remember that it's not just a game for these people. It is their livelihood, and it's also what they're remembered for. And uh, I, I think Stephen Hendry, now that he has retired, he uh, he's taken a little bit more time to consider his career. When he was playing, it was always about the next event. OK, I've won one, we're going to the next one. But I know that he has spent a little bit of time looking back. And when he does look back, obviously there'll be matches, there'll be finals that have gone away that he thought he felt he should have won, maybe. But when you look at his career overall, it's got to be the greatest ever. You've said it already. In terms of the achievements, there's no one to touch him. No, absolutely. I will qualify this quite openly and say, in my opinion, playing at his best, Ronnie O'Sullivan might well beat Stephen Hendry playing at his best. Yeah. I will say that. There's no doubt in my mind. O'Sullivan, in terms of talent, in terms of ability, I can't imagine anyone who could be better when his mind and his, uh, you know, his focus is fully there. But in terms of career achievement and in terms of the way he handled pressure as well, that's very important. No one was a better pressure player than Stephen Hendry. In terms of all that, I think he, his uh, career is exemplary and I think his records, or many of them, will remain for a very uh, long amount of time. But, you know, one thing I have to say here, Dave, I feel as though I'm talking now like someone who I actually mocked at the time. I'll tell you this story. We were at the Regal Scottish Masters in Motherwell. Uh, Dookie Donnelly, who was a great loss to snooker in my opinion, was interviewing uh, Ted Lowe. Ted had just announced his retirement after being a television commentator for 50 years. And it was actually in the arena at Motherwell Civic Centre, if my memory serves me correct. And Dookie said, well, I've got to ask you, Ted, he said, who was the greatest player over the generations you've ever seen? And the late Ted Lowe said at the time, never forget it, 
Well, he said, Steve Davis and your own Stephen Hendry, of course, we were in Scotland. He said, fine, fine players, he said, but they weren't fit to lace Joe Davis's boots. <laughs> now, at the time, I treated this statement with utter contempt. I thought it was completely and utterly ridiculous. Tell you what, in 30 years' time, if anyone's listening to this podcast, they might be thinking, that affiliates. These statements are ridiculous. But Ted was convinced that Joe Davis was the greatest player of all time, and nothing will change my opinion about Stephen Hendry. He was the king. It's difficult, though, for him now, I'm sure, going to the Crucible, despite everything, all that he's won and all we've talked about, sits in the commentary box. He must wish he was still out there. And, of course, there's a great danger always in sport, and it happens many times, that players retire, they do it with dignity, and then a few years later they can't help themselves, they come back, and there's been raised talk about he might play in the World Championship. He's resisted that. I personally hope he continues to, because I, I can't see what he can possibly do now to match anything he did in the past. Would you agree that he should just stay where he is and... Leave the rest of them to it? Absolutely. Uh, no doubt in my mind. With one notable exception, I think he'd be a really good addition to the World Seniors Championship. Mm. I think that would be great to see him there. But in terms of playing on the main tour and at the uh, World Championship, of course, he'd have to qualify. No, no. I think his legacy is implanted in the game's history. Nothing will ever remove it. And whatever he does now, it will be considered a novelty. He was the man... I don't think he should be a supporting act or even a bit part player. That would be demeaning to him. Absolutely. Well, he can uh, he can sit resplendent in his BBC sweater as long as he likes, as far as I'm concerned. Phil, thank you so much for your memories of Stephen Hendry. It's been uh, great to, to reminisce uh, the great moments. Thanks for your company and thanks, everybody, for listening to another Snooker Scene podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.